1: nine o'clock, and you're listening to 102.73 RRR, Radio Marinara is the name of this program. We cover all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton.
2: And I'm Angeline Charles. How are you, Angeline? I'm good. Good. I'm good. Yay. I'm very excited this are you? week. Why is that? Well, I saw a spotted quoll. Yes. Somewhere where you don't find them, I and know I'm very this. excited about seeing that. Unfortunately, it was roadkill, <laughs> so it's not a great story for the quoll. But well, the it does individual mean, in question. The individual in question, that's right. But it does mean that we have discovered a new area for them, so... Yeah, I'll keep following that up. It's very exciting.
1: I was on the road for ten hours yesterday, coming back from Bermagui, which is where I've been for the last two weeks, and um, I saw your Facebook posting about your spotted quoll discovery. And I have to admit, <laughs> not that I was kind of looking at the side of the road for ten straight hours, but I kept <laughs> noticing roadkill and having you know paying a bit more attention to it. This time, I did see something that was looked like it had spots on it, but it definitely wasn't a quoll. Well,
2: this was in the middle of the road yeah. on the white line, so I, I was looking at it really to not squash it further. When I saw the spots and thought, "Wow, that that's something very unusual." Mm. Yeah, it's very exciting.
1: Thank you, Tim, very much for uh, for vital bits. As always, it's um yeah, it's lovely to come back and hear vital bits because that's one thing I really have missed while I was away. And uh, wanted to make a point too that uh, we're in the middle of April amnesty at the moment, which is also something that's kicked off while I've been away as well. And I tell you what, never have I noticed an absence of Triple R more than uh, when I've been in a position to not really listen to it. Because of course you can listen via streaming, but I happened to be staying in a caravan park where internet access was very limited, and just I've missed Triple R for two weeks. I tell you what, there is there was a big gaping hole.
2: I'm glad to see the absence made the heart grow fonder. (laughs) It did. (laughs)
1: So I'm going to put a plug straight out there before we get into our show. And if it's time for you to subscribe, you can do that. Don't do it at the moment because there's no one out there to take the calls. Um, but you can call, of course, during office hours. You can always do it via online, uh, an online application at any time. All right, straight into today's program. And, oh, look, we're going everywhere from uh, West Papua to Antarctica and right up into the uh, the Arctic Circle as well. First up, we're going to be catching up with Terry Allen, who is our in-house Radio Marinara dive reporter. She's been diving in West Papua, uh, would you believe?
2: How exciting! Yeah. i have heard it's really beautiful to dive there.
1: Mm, I have too, and uh, I've never had the pleasure, so it's going to be great to talk to Terry. We're actually catching up with her from uh, Mount Gambia, which she's cave diving. She's a go-getter, isn't she? We pick (laughs) high-quality dive reporters here on Radio Mariner, Angeline. She can cave dive and then she can go diving in the tropics and Terry can just dive everywhere. So, uh, yeah, I'm keen to talk to her a little bit about that too and kind of look at that contrast between diving in pristine tropical waters and then down into the dark, murky caves where it's bloody cold. Then uh, we're going to be speaking with Managing Director of Sea Shepherd Australia, Jeff Hanson, who's actually in Perth, so we'll be crossing to Perth, talking about their summer campaign Operation Ice Fish and the amazing goals that they've been able to kick over the last four months of camp or five months of campaign work, uh, not just in Antarctica, but They've been pursuing uh, illegal fishers, who we kind of know generally as poachers, um, for deep-sea fish, largely Patagonian toothfish, but other deep-sea species as well. And uh, one of – you might have seen there's been a bit of mainstream coverage of the sinking of one of these vessels – up in, I think, just off the African coast. But they mm. one of their vessels, I think it was the Bob Barker, chased this boat from Antarctica all the way across the uh, Indian Ocean and up into the Atlantic. It sunk itself, though, it's
2: important to note. Yes, yeah. allegedly. <laughs> allegedly, that's what happened.
1: So uh, we're going to talk to Jeff about that as well and uh, also talk about another campaign they've got going at the moment to try and get... Um, or uh, we'll try and change current methods of shark uh, diversion um, in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. Oh, great! They've got a lot of uh, public support for what they're trying to do there as well. And then to finish, uh, Joanne Brookfield is a stand-up comedian. She's currently got a show on for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival called uh, "Then This Happened," and it's partly based uh, on her experiences with Sea Shepherd couple of years ago so she's coming into studio to talk to us about those particular experiences and how she's managed to derive a stand-up comedy show out of it
2: oh cool i'll be interested to hear
1: that yeah not two things you normally associate (laughs) <laughs> together. <laughs> sea Shepherd and all the horrendous um, situations that they have to face. And then stand-up
2: comedy. I'm sure they've got a lot of comedy on the boat because in situations like that, you had to see the lighter side of it well, that's before right. you go crazy.
1: It would have to almost be a survival technique, I yep. think. Yeah, a survival tool. So that's our program. Uh, now, a bit of weather for you. 18 degrees and mostly sunny today, partly cloudy. And light winds becoming south-easterlies to 20 kilometres an hour in the morning and then tending southerly in the middle of the day. It's actually going to warm up all the way through the week up till Thursday. So tomorrow 20, sunny. Tuesday 24, Wednesday 24 and then Thursday back down to 18 and a possible shower and then around 20 for the rest of the week. The tide times, um, Port Phillip heads. We are heading for a low water tide at 10.32 this morning and then a high tide at 5.30 this afternoon. There you go. And a very quick surf forecast. The surf's average today, freshening onshore wind and building swell water temperatures 18 degrees. We've got time for a bit of news, Angeline.
2: We have. Well, I was um, actually came about this story because I was thinking on going on one of those um, cage diving expeditions. You know, when you go and look at great white sharks in South Australia mm. in a cage, but notice that they haven't seen one, they haven't seen any sharks since February. Remember in February... One was eaten. Well, that was attacked by a pod of orcas and died. And and uh, and the sharks haven't come back since then. So two months and three weeks thereabouts, uh, there's been no sightings whatsoever. So there's there's three licensed dive operators, and they've written to the government and said we'd like to have um, some more sites that we can go to other than the um, islands at the Neptune Islands that they go to because. you know, the businesses are suffering and all the businesses on shore that support this at Port Lincoln are suffering as well. So it's a good local tourism venture um, and, you know, they're saying we want to open up some more sites for when we can't see sharks at Nep- Neptune Islands that we can go elsewhere. So this is open for comment at the moment in South Australia and, of course, Abalone and surfers and other fishing groups are, I guess, unhappy about this proposal because they think it's going to threaten their safety as well. But um, I mean. I can I can certainly understand how it's such a hard issue to talk about because it's you know linked to our primal fear. <laughs> Everyone's got that fear of being eaten by a shark, and and it can be very emotive. But um, I thought that was a really interesting sort of thing that's happening over there, mm-hmm. which you know sort of brought up a few questions for me about sharks. Is that how long is their memory, and and uh, how long will it be before they actually return, and and will they ever return? Will they now associate? Um, that incident with these cages and the, the cage diving, because it happened during um, a cage dive. So uh, while I was sort of they they attract the sharks to the boat with burley, and that's when the attack happened. So you know, is it ever going to pick up again, or is or is this it? But um, yeah, really interesting stuff. So I've cancelled my plans on going. <laughs>
1: What's not much point if there's not any great ones right. to go and look
2: at? Well, I'm sure it'll be a great, great boat trip out there and, yeah, it might be will be cold at this time of the year. But, it um, raises a whole lot of questions, doesn't
1: it, Around because this is largely about resource allocation, which is where all these arguments usually come from. Everyone feels that they've got a right to either a particular place to either look at or harvest or protect yeah. marine life. and. You would assume that there's not been just one great white shark in the South Australian waters around Port Lincoln. There have to be several of them. So, yeah, a whole bunch of issues there. And also what you were just talking about in terms of their memory. How Mm. how do the other sharks not know... How do they know to not well, come how back? Well, how do
2: they all know this, yeah? And, uh, well, and, and about where they see their population. So they see about, I can say about nine or ten sharks on a on a trip.
1: Okay, so it's so not just that there's one local resident
2: that no, they see right. time and time yeah. again. There's lots of them. Sure, but then you've got to remember too, those sharks are in already there. They're already in the water. So this isn't about, you know, when people say oh, it's going to attract more sharks to where we are. I mean, hello, they're already there. Mm-hmm. It just, Burling just brings them into our visual field so that we can see them. And with the orcas in question, were they passing through or are they local residents as well? I'm not sure about the orcas. I've heard a few people when I lived down in Warrnambool said that they'd seen them when they were out. Um, so I think they are. They yeah. are around. They just don't come in sure where we might be.
1: You wonder about whether it would be even feasible to convert the great white shark uh, experience into
2: an orca spotting experience. I reckon the sightings would be far and few between. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Might <laughs> not be as viable that they're going to be there.
2: <laughs> There's another story
1: that's in today's age. I want to talk about this one more too. Sure. Because I think it's fascinating. We should um, have a chat to the people who run these expeditions as yeah. well. Um, yeah, a story in today's age uh, on page 18. If you want some more details about. Uh, China declaring plans for an uh, what's reported here as an unprecedented expansion of fishing for Antarctic krill. So obviously this is causing a fair amount of concern. It's not just a minor expansion, it's a seven-fold expansion of what is currently being fished. And, of course, we know krill underpin survival of all sorts of Antarctic marine life, um, whales, seals, penguins, seabirds, and obviously all the fish down there as well, anything that eats them, really. So this is an article that's actually been... Uh, the initial story was reported in China Daily... And I won't go into too much more detail about it. You can read it if you want, obviously not in China Daily, but it <laughs> unless you uh, read Mandarin Fluent, or yep. Cantonese, or I'm not sure which language it's in. But, uh, yeah, on the age in the age on page 18. But there is a quote in here which concerns me a little bit, and uh, this is um, the chairman of the China National Agricultural Development Group. Uh, his quote, which concerns me a bit, and he says, Quill provides very good quality protein that can be processed into food medicine which is true but then it's this quote that worries me that antarctica is a treasure house yes it is for all human beings and china should go there and share so it kind of raises that whole question of yes antarctica is a treasure house but it's being purely looked at, at the lens of you know with the lens of what can we go down there and harvest what can we go down there and exploit and that uh, that china as a country feels that it has every right to go down there and, and harvest.
2: It worries me too because because the Antarctic is uh, pivotal to <coughs> our climate and yeah. we, we probably don't really understand how much it drives the earth and going down there and interfering with the ecosystem is, I find, quite scary. That's right. There are concerns about the ability to manage this as well. It's the Australian-based
1: organisation, which I gather is the Antarctic Australian Antarctic Division, which manages all Antarctic fisheries. So uh, there are some concerns there in terms of how the australian antarctic division will manage a seven-fold increase in fishing mm. by china because it means more vessels going down there
2: sure i think the sea shepherd will probably have to tell us how well it's being managed down there exactly
1: yep. and i think that's a really good question for jeff hansen so we'll hold that one for now and then when we speak with jeff in a little while ask him about, about that as well and without further ado we're now going to cross to mount gambia in south australia to catch up with our dive reporter terry allen good morning terry
3: Good morning, Bron. How are
1: you? I'm good, thanks. Great. It's great to speak. You've been, you've been zooming all over the place doing diving <laughs> since we last spoke.
3: Yeah, I uh, haven't have been in Victoria or I haven't been in Melbourne very much, so uh, yeah, no, it's been good.
1: So we wanted to focus a little bit on um, West Papua, because that's where you've been and where you've been diving as well, and I thought maybe we'd just start by just talking about it uh, generally and describing it. It seems like an amazing place. I've only seen a few pictures here and there of what it's like underwater, but yeah, talk us through it.
3: Yeah, so uh, it was an interesting place to get to for a start. We had to go through, like, you imagine you might fly to Papua New Guinea and then sort of fly across to West Papua, but uh, of course that's not the case because uh, they don't really sort of talk to each other that much, I guess. Um, so, yeah, we flew up to Bali and then we did, uh, I think it was two flights, island hopping across Indonesia uh, until we got to the mainland and then we sort of backtracked uh, to a, a small town Um on the sort of western tip of Papua. Uh, and then we were um, taken to a small uh, sort of grotty harbour and then onto a beautiful boat, which is called the Indo-Siren. Um, so ra- the area we were diving is called Raja Ampat, which, if you know your Indonesian, Bronwyn, <laughs> is uh, four kings.
1: Oh, right. And no, yeah. I don't.
3: <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I-, I finally learned Ampat was four. And everyone on the boat gets a number, and that's their... their- Dive spot and that's their towel and that's whatever and and I, I was number four so I learnt that that was arm part. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so um, <clears throat> so we had quite a, a long steam out on the on the boat and uh, overnight and then um, the sort of three main or four big islands and other smaller islands and um, yeah, just amazing sort of limestone um, islands, just completely. Uh, the southern part we started was completely but uninhabited, which was absolutely amazing.
1: So what prompted this particular trip? Because you've dived all over the place. You've dived through Micronesia uh, and I, I don't know how many. We won't bother listing all the places you've dived because <laughs> there have been a, a large number of them. What prompted this particular trip to, Papua, to West Papua? What, what was it?
3: Um, I think Rajaram part has uh, just in the last few years became quite a, has got quite a reputation and it's... Uh, I've been told that it's actually supposed to have the highest concentration of marine species, and I think particularly fish, of anywhere in the world. Wow. Um, And then, of course, you know, heard about the amazing diving and a lot of sort of, you know, big big stuff, as well as, uh, you know, nudibranchs and and good macro and and things as well. So a friend of mine had been there before, and, um, yeah, same as you, I'd seen a few photos and things, and... So, yeah, I just thought, A, it's great to go somewhere not many people have been, and B, to actually see the underwater there. It was uh, was a dream for quite a few years. So, yeah, it was good.
2: Oh, Terry, oh, sorry, it's Angeline here, Terry. I've heard it's really pristine there and quite untouched. Is that true?
3: Well, I sort of thought that initially. I mean, as I said, we were in areas where we would occasionally see an odd local fishing boat, uh, which was mainly with with Papuans. locals there not the indonesians um but i have to say we went off on a little island tour i went to a tiny little sandy beach and sure enough there was the bloody plastic bottles and the rubber thongs and you know the signs of of human uh, waste that was you know disappointing um but there were you know as i said a lot of areas where it it really was quite untouched um
1: so talk us through some of the, what, what did you see down there in terms of fish and uh, invertebrates? And you mentioned nudibranchs and corals and, and that sort of thing in terms of, did you, did you have a field guide? Is it possible to actually, because I know the diving that you and I used to do when we went up through the coral reefs and, and on the sort of the northern part of Queensland, it's, it's so, it's, it's well documented enough that you can, you know, identify a lot of what you see out there. How was it in West Papua? Did you kind of have any idea of what you were looking at?
3: Yeah, well, with these um, boats where we pay a lot of money, <laughs> uh, we have um, we it was 14 divers and we we're broken up into three groups and each group had its own guide and then the guides moved around during the week. So there was one person that was very good at sort of doing the big stuff. So we saw the uh, first time ever I saw an oceanic manta ray, four or five meters across, absolutely mind blowing. Um, There was another guy that was very good at finding tiny little sea spiders and um, shrimp and coral gobies and all sorts of things that my poor 50-year-old eyes can (laughs) no longer see. We saw frogfish, which were fantastic crocodile fish, um, snapper, very, very big uh, king barracuda. Probably one of the most amazing dives. And one thing that was a little bit unfortunate with the trip, we had some bad visibility during it at times which, you know, you think, oh, I've come all this way but we saw a big bait ball of sardines and they were being fished, there were mobula rays which look like a small manta ray mobula rays actually fishing through the bait ball of sardines. That was mind-blowing.
2: Wow. And, um, Terry, did you see many ocean predators like sharks and things?
3: Yeah, we saw quite a few sharks. We saw a couple of grey whalers. Um, Not as many sharks as I thought we would see, you know. I mean, Papua New Guinea had the reputation of, you know, a lot of sharks. And we did see quite a few, uh, a lot of wobbegongs on the bottom, Um, And quite a few uh, Spanish mackerel Big, nice and big dog tooth tuna But probably not as many as I was expecting Which was a bit sad, I think
1: Would you go back?
3: Um, I'm not sure. Look, it it was really good. Um, It it cost a lot of money to do the trip. You can do a land-based one, but it's still probably, you know, still quite a lot of money. The the bad visibility sort of put us off a little bit, but it was still, I'm I'm glad I've done it, but I'm not sure I'd race back and do it again.
1: Okay, so there's other places
2: that you might go. Yeah, yeah. You might go back to. Yeah. And and Terry, how did you go about feeling uh, safe there with your personal safety?
3: Well, that's the great thing about being on a liveaboard. Um, I felt completely safe. And um, we, you know, we a couple of times we went to little towns where we had to refuel and uh, the boat had to refuel. And we walked around and um, I, I felt very safe there. Some of the areas were very interesting, you know, the local Indonesian, you know, Muslim population. And, you know, you'd hear the... Uh, Call for prayer at four o'clock in the morning and um, but I felt absolutely completely safe. Um, one other thing we did actually we we got up at four a m one morning went right up a river in the dinghies and we did a bird of paradise um tour and uh just sat in a hide and waited for the sunrise and we saw a couple of bird of paradise so that was another major species tick off even though it wasn't
1: underwater <laughs> <laughs> And these are real birds of paradise not the kind yeah. of things that you might find in <laughs> Not the plants, in <laughs> yeah. Mabel's garden Yeah, so that was like oh,
3: I'm feeling very David Attenborough now, oh, yeah, really <laughs> exciting
1: <laughs> Now, um, we're going to let you go in a minute but I did want to firstly quick ask, ask you about the fact you've gone from West Papua to Mount Gambia <laughs> and you've gone from this incredible kind of tropical water, how warm was the water by the way in West Papua? Um, yeah, it's
3: about 28, 29 degrees. Wow. So it was board shorts and uh, rashies. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, seven, no thick 7 mil wetsuits or dry suits. No, so no. you've gone from that to cave diving in Mount Gambia where the water temperature's what, about 12?
3: Yeah, this time of year it's... Oh, look, the caves can be 14, 15, but, yes, about half the temperature we had in <laughs> Indonesia. So back to the dry suit and the thermals and the you know the, and all that. So wow. now I've got a couple of guys... Uh, we, we came here, actually, to, um, last week... Uh, my partner Jeff was teaching the first level cave diving and I was just doing some dives a couple of guys have come down here from Brisbane and uh, so now they've stayed on and we've come back again this weekend and I'm teaching them the second level cave diving so we've up to our last day today about to drive out to the pine forest this morning beautiful uh, black cockatoos and parrots around us and then we're going to go down into a, a beautiful cave called pines in the middle of a forest and uh, and give them a bit of um few skills and things to do and have fun.
1: Great. So when you're on the show next time we want to talk about cave diving too and just a really quick question about these guys how are they coping with diving you know having come from Brisbane to
3: to <laughs> are they are they managing? No, yeah, they're, they're all right. They've had a fair bit of dry-suit practice, luckily. And, um, yeah, but they five-degree mornings. I think they walk, they're walking around in their thongs and boardies and sort of wondering <laughs> why it's so cold. But I think they're acclimatised now. So I think when they go back to Brisbane, they're going to get a bit of a heat shock. <laughs> yeah.
1: We'll let you go and do your cave diving and hopefully treat yourself to a visit to one of the local wineries at the end of it all as well.
3: Oh, it sounds good, Bron. All Thanks.
1: right. Great. Thanks for catching up with us. We'll um, hopefully get you in studio when you're back in Melbourne. Yeah, sure, that'd be good. Okay, thanks, Terry.
2: Bye. Bye, bye for now. Terry Allen, our dive reporter. That sounds amazing in Papua New Guinea. I'd love to go there. Mm, me too. Put that on the list. And, Angeline, we've got some news. Well, I do have some news. It is also about sharks, though. I've got them on the brain this weekend. But I just saw a story online about a gentleman, a fisherman actually, um, from Pottsville near on the Gold Coast who uh, caught a four-metre tiger shark off the shore on a few... Fishing line which, which apparently if he had kept the shark, it would have been a world record. And from as a shore catch as a shore catch absolutely. It took him about three hours to catch it. And uh, if you go and look it online, I might link it up. There's some amazing pictures of him, like, sitting down beside it, holding it, which I <laughs> thought was, whoa, a uh, bit dangerous there. But um, he decided after the end of that that he would um, release it and let it go because he thought it was more important to see it swim away. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so I just wanted to talk about that story just because uh, how wonderful it was about this uh, 19-year-old guy catching this shark and that his ego didn't get in the way and he thought it was so important that he let it go and, and uh, it's gone back into the ocean That and also that he spends, uh, uses a lot of his money, well, catching sharks but and releasing them, but also um, funding research and conservation that he donates to those organisations and what a great fisherman he is for doing that. It is a good story. Yeah, so mm. awesome to him. And uh, also up in the Kimberleys, uh, you know that around um, sort of um, northwestern, uh, Western Australia so up in that top end that this is like an area where there's a lot of potential development coming on and and it's quite a, a you know a beautiful undisturbed area that probably it's we a bit don't, vulnerable yeah vulnerable and we don't know a lot about and and, and could potentially need some um, protection and the, there's a research program going on at the moment where um, researchers it's a 30 million dollar uh, government funding to uh, to have a look at um, 26 research projects in the area to learn more about uh, the kimberleys uh, so it's studies of fish mammals corals and tides and climate change to understand more about it to, to plan better for the future development along the kimberley coast that's happening at the moment and uh, and it's had a lot of local interest they had a, a halfway they're about halfway through the studies and they had a workshop to let uh, the you know interested parties in the community know where they were up to and what they'd found out so far and they had over 200 people register for it so Also, a lot of local interest, which is great. Mm. Good to see the community wanting to know more. It is. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, that's it for me (laughs) Fabulous And
1: while the rest of us have been swimming, sailing, surfing and generally enjoying the summer just gone Sea Shepherd activists have been getting down to business executing Operation Icefish in the Southern Ocean They've been investigating and preventing illegal unreported and unregulated fishing which we know generally as poaching During the week their efforts culminated in the apparent self-destruction of the Thunder a vessel well known to Sea Shepherd as uh, a vessel of piracy fishing The sinking of the Thunder has been met with ovation by legal fishers, as well as conservationists and environmentalists, and is a significant step forward in wiping out illegal fishing in Antarctic waters. To tell us more, we're very pleased and uh, very grateful to welcome from Sea Shepherd, because it's early over there in Western Australia, Managing Director uh, of Australian Sea Shepherd, Jeff Hansen. Good morning, Jeff.
4: Good morning. Thanks for having us on the show.
1: Oh, thanks so much for making yourself available. I know it's a bit early for you over there. <laughs>
4: That's right. The kids have a
1: have us up all night. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can relate to that as well. Thought we'd um, first up before we get into the activities over summer. I thought I might ask you, uh, in your role as managing director, have you seen Sea Shepherd develop over the years, and particularly in the support that you're receiving now? We've noticed it over the years. Things seem to be going from strength to strength for you.
4: Yeah, I think in terms of the public awareness and support, it's been fantastic. You know, people are more aware of our oceans and it's great to, you know, go and do school talks and the kids know so much more about, you know, the importance of roles that sharks play and whales play and and how, you know, most of the air that we breathe comes from our oceans. So from that perspective, it's been fantastic. Uh, However, that hasn't translated into donations. It's something we still need to work on, but definitely the awareness and the profile has definitely grown.
1: And uh, and also just in the work that you've done as well um, and how Sea Shepherd Australia particularly is regarded on the world stage, I would have to guess that you guys would be up there with world leaders, with other chapters of Sea Shepherd in what you've been able to accomplish. Is that true?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think what we've got in Australia is probably, I guess, the first of its kind in Sea Shepherd's history. I mean, we have a Southern Ocean operations based just in Williamstown across the Westgate Bridge. Um, We've never had that sort of facility before in Sea Shepherd's almost 40-year history. And uh, I think a lot of what Sea Shepherd does, uh, you know, no-nonsense actually delivering results, is not only what the world's been crying out for, but also Australians as well, and I think that really suits the Australian psyche.
1: Now it's been a really big summer for you and when we last caught up with Sea Shepherd it was with Michelle Mossfield who was acting manager of the Steve Irwin and that was back in September and you're about to embark on Operation Ice Fish. Um, there have been a lot of presses that have come out in the last couple of weeks really reporting, well last couple of months I suppose, reporting on the progress of Operation Ice Fish. So uh, this is number 11 in your Southern Ocean Defence campaign. How's it gone?
4: Yeah, we couldn't have asked for a better result, really. When we launched the campaign, there was a lot of knockers saying we wouldn't find any illegal activity. It was kind of a waste of time. Uh, and, you know, leave it up to the authorities. Well, the reality was the authorities weren't down there. The Australian Southern Ocean purpose-built patrol vessel didn't head down there, even though it was promising two 40-day patrols. And uh, it was up to Sea Shepherd. And uh, within only a couple of days of hitting the search we found the most notorious poaching vessel, the Interpol Wanted Thunder, um, just off the Banzar Bank, and that started a you know, four-month pursuit of that vessel, uh, which went through three oceans and covered basically almost uh, half the Earth's circumference. <laughs> so, it,
1: it's amazing. I was astounded when I was reading these figures in the press 11,000 nautical miles, this big chase for, by the Bob Barker chasing the thunder across the globe
4: yeah I went through the Indian uh, Atlantic and southern oceans, and uh it was just absolutely epic and uh It was also great that we had industry join us as well uh not not only were we working with Interpol but also in industry with the Austral fisheries as well so I think it's um you know it's a fantastic result it's further given sea Shepherd more credibility and hopefully we start to get a little bit more support from the Australian government, which would be fantastic.
1: Now, uh, this all ended during the week, uh, I don't know if it was this week, it was reported during the week with the sinking of the thunder. And I was thinking for our listeners who maybe missed what was reported in mainstream media, talk us through what happened with that. It looks like it was a bit of a self-destruction uh, activity on their part.
4: Yeah, well, we were pursuing the, the thunder, and it was 110 days' pursuit. Uh, we are in the waters just off Sal to of Maine in the principal off the West, Australian, uh, West African coast, sorry and we got a distress call from the captain of the thunder saying that they're taking on water and they're abandoning ship so we said okay we're standing by ready to assist um we got uh, all of the uh, crew got in life rafts the uh uh, something like 30 indonesian and 10 uh, spanish officers on board that vessel Uh, we had big concerns for slavery on the things that we'd been seeing on that vessel as well with the indonesian crew and um then the vessel was taking on water and all the officers were on board. But we managed to get a couple of crew on board the Thunder and have a look while it was taking on water. And we discovered that all the hatches had been basically wide open, the fish hole was open. So it was a deliberate, completely deliberate act of sinking and scuttling their own vessel um, because that that was the vessel that was wanted by Interpol. They didn't want the investigation of all their illegal catch on board, so they decided to scuttle their own vessel.
1: And I understand that while your crew were retrieving some of the bits and pieces that were likely to be used as evidence by Interpol, uh, it wasn't received so favourably by the people of the Thunder, is that right?
4: yeah when they saw us on board going through and getting uh, bits of evidence that we'll be handing over to interpol uh they weren't quite happy at all but um when the vessel finally did sink and went down it was interesting to note that the captain of the sunday in one of the life rafts uh, clapped and cheered when his vessel sunk so You think it would at least uh, hold back a bit, uh, (laughs) pretending, but no, he would decide to clap and cheer as his vessel went down.
1: What was it like for your crew, sort of receiving these people on board the Bob Barker? I don't know if you've had a chance to catch up with them or speak with them, but um, you know, after that huge, epic four months of chasing at sea, and suddenly they're all in a confined space, all together. what, What was that experience like for them?
4: Well, I think with the Indonesian crew, I think they were quite happy to come on board and yeah you know, we're quite happy to re- to receive them um, we had we had seen there had been reports of one Indonesian crew committing suicide there's a lot of links with uh, illegal fishing and uh, the slave trade on board these vessels um, sometimes they hold their homes over their heads and won't pay them until they return back to base that their families have no contact with them so um I think the Indonesian crew were quite happy, but in terms of the Spanish officers, they weren't very happy at all to be to be on board our ships and uh, You know, obviously not happy that um, we went on board and got that information that can lead to prosecution of these guys. It's just uh, all comes back to, you know... blatant illegal, you know, fishing of our oceans, and uh, it's got to stop because our oceans are in big trouble globally.
1: Now, there's six known vessels to Sea Shepherd who engage in this sort of activity. Uh, The Thunder was one, and um, can you tell us a bit about the others as well? I was reading that there were two more that have been detained in Southeast Asia, so the Viking, and is it the Kunlun or the Kunlun?
4: Yeah, the Kunlun has been obtained as well, um, and that's been held... uh, investigation as well and the Viking as well. We also come across the Yonding as well um, and we chase both of those vessels uh, the, the Sam Simon chased both of those vessels out of uh, just out of the waters uh, west of the Ross Sea um, out of the Southern Ocean. So it's you know, it's been an epic campaign I think, you know Having Sea Shepherds involvement has been put a huge spotlight on what's happening in the Southern Ocean, and you know, I hope that that has empower, empowered a lot of the authorities to get more involved and more engaged, and as a result. Six of the known illegal vessels, uh, there's three of them, uh, out of action. Uh, one's 3.8 kilometres below, below the ocean. So, know, yeah, you know, um, it's, it's a huge blow.
1: Oh, it's amazing. And, like when you look at it in those terms, that Sea Shepherd's basically, through one campaign over the summer, you've halved the number of known poaching vessels in the Southern Ocean, and, and that in itself is such an incredible achievement
4: yeah we're, we're pretty happy uh, and you know we've, this is our 11th campaign down in the Southern Ocean uh, 10 before that were all anti-whaling but um, you know Japan didn't hunt whales this year so that gave us an opportunity to look at illegal fishing uh, so we'll see what happens next year with the Ocean and what, what Japan's up to uh, and then play our, play our cards from there but we, you know, we'll we be preparing once again hopefully from our ship's operations based in Williamstown and we encourage you know, people to get down there on weekends for tours the Steve Irwin's still docked there so yeah we welcome the public support
1: Yeah I want to ask you two last questions before we let you go one was about the Sam Simon because we mentioned that and there are three main flagship vessels with Sea Shepherd in Australia the Sam Simon, the Bob Barker uh, and the Steve Irwin so the Sam Simon played quite an amazing role in partnership with Bob Barker didn't it and I wanted to talk about the amount of fishing gear that was dumped overboard
4: Yeah well you know was interesting with CAMLA is the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic um, Marine Living Resources and that's where you know the legal operators get their permits and being able to operate down in that area and of course these Illegal fishermen, um, you know the, the Thunder and the Cumberland and so forth don't have the permit. And one of the things that's banned by Camlar is outlawed is the use of gill nets because they're just so destructive, um, big curtains of death on the bottom of the ocean. And when we came across the Thunder, when the Bob Barker found it, it was just you know gill nets everywhere, and uh, they just dropped their gear and ran. So what was pivotal in that was that the we had the other vessel, the Sam Simon, and that was. We modified it for the campaign to be able to pull in any any lines or gill nets that we found. And over a four-week period, the uh, Sam Simon managed to remove over 72 kilometres of illegal fishing gear abandoned by the Thunder. Uh, it was unbelievable, and just you know, huge amounts of. Um, fish on board that vessel, you know, probably in, in, the, in the equation of millions of dollars in profit loss, plus the the nets itself will probably cost about half a million dollars.
1: So 72 kilometres of long lines and other fishing gear, absolutely amazing. What happens after that gets all brought on board? Does that all just get handed over to Interpol?
4: Yeah, we handed a number of it over to Interpol in Mauritius as part of their investigation. We had Interpol police to there um and then anything left over we'll, we'll look at what, what we can do with that we may look at um doing some recycling with that um maybe some uh converting into uh into some uh, clothing or something you know yeah. we'll fundraising opportunities uh, yeah we're yeah. always always looking for ways to minimize the waste obviously
1: yeah hey what i'm going to do jeff because i wanted to ask you about your great barrier reef marine park campaign as well actually do you want to mention that one really quickly now because i know this is hot for you at the moment you got twenty nine thousand signatures on a petition and it's all to do with um, shark conservation.
4: Yeah, well, we've got now thirty-five thousand signatures. Uh-huh. It's, it's all it's all been wrapped up now, and we've sent a uh, petition into the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, and we're asking for them to basically revoke the permit which allows the Queensland Shark Control Program to operate in within the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. I mean, who would have thought that we'd have? You know these drum lines. Uh, you know there's about three or four nets, and over uh, over 100 hundred and hundred drum lines, which are indiscriminate killing devices. Basically, they trap and kill everything from whales, dolphins, turtles, sharks, dugongs, and they've been operating in uh, off the east coast of Australia since the 1950s. And uh, you know it's 2015 now. There's we should be looking for alternatives that actually can help, you know, looking after our our loved ones and uh, providing that public safety where there's a need without killing our marine life.
1: Well, uh, let's hope that that all amounts to um, some positive turnaround in terms of uh, the action by the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority and and Jeff, we'll um, we'll be in touch again in the next couple of months, particularly when the Bob Barker and the Sam Simon return to Williamstown and hopefully with uh, a huge number of people to greet them because what an amazing job that they've done over this particular summer and we can talk more about what's next for Sea Shepherd Australia particularly with the the lead into some announcements by Japan on whether the whaling activity is planned to be resumed
4: absolutely and uh, yeah, thanks to all the listeners out there for supporting sea shepherd and what we do it's uh seashepherd.org.au and uh you know in today's day and age you know we're the problems the world face are huge and um i think what you know sea shepherd delivers results and when we collectively shut down whaling or shut down illegal fishing in the southern ocean it's everyone from the mums and dads the supporters the donors the volunteers, we collectively all do and we should feel empowered and, and, and share in those victories.
1: Absolutely, we 100% agree. Thanks so much for joining us, Jeff, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks a lot Okay, bye for now Jeff Hansen, Managing Director of Sea Shepherd Australia and uh, we have put a link to their... We have already, it got yep. a lot of interest already Oh brilliant uh, and look, if you can get out there and support Sea Shepherd in whatever way, please do uh, The sea, uh, Steve Irwin, currently docked in Williamstown and the Bob Barker and Sam Simon will be returning to shore at some point in the next couple of months Now as we've just been hearing the work that Sea Shepherd does involves courage and conviction and being prepared to witness some incredibly disturbing assaults and violence in the Southern Ocean Whales and deep sea fishes. It's not something you'd normally associate with stand up comedy. However, our next guest, a seasoned professional stand up comedian, not only managed to cut it with the most hardened ocean protectors and activists, but come away with the experience with a stand up comedy show currently on with the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. We're so well pleased to welcome to Radio Marinara to tell us more, Joanne Brookfield. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks so much for coming in. Now, uh, I thought we'd start with the obvious question: How does a stand up comedian end up on on a Sea Shepherd ship. Were you uh, looking for the ultimate experience
0: of pathos-derived comedy? <laughs> well, actually, in my in my real life and in my day job, because um, I, I don't know, stand-up comedy some kind of crazy fantasy job, but um, I'm actually a journalist, and so the reason I was on board, I'm not technically a, a crew member of Sea Shepherd, but I, am, I embedded with them um, for the duration of Operation Zero Tolerance, which was at the start of 2013. So uh, I was on the Sam Simon and... Uh, Got to observe and write about the, the campaign, so I got to see it all happen close up. Okay, so you were their in-house journalist when you went down there? No, not in, I wouldn't call me an in-house journalist. Um, I'm obviously an external party. They, they've got their own media team that okay. um, look after their media for whale wars and that kind of thing. So I was um, outside observer in, in that regard, but yes, definitely on board. And so what were you expecting when you went on board? Did you have any kind of ideas of what was likely to happen? Well, I have, I'm very familiar with the organisation and, and all the rest of it, so I did have a, a bit of an idea, but obviously each campaign's different, so I didn't really didn't know how it was going to play out. I was reliably informed I picked a good campaign to be on, though, because there was quite a lot of dramatic and very intense action that, that took place, like all the ships got damaged, there was you know, plenty of collisions and all, all that kind of stuff, so there was um, certainly lots happening on that one.
1: Had you been to sea before?
0: No. Wow.
1: Okay. <laughs> I'm
0: starting to see
1: where the comedy routine might come in. Yeah.
0: Yeah, first time. So, yeah, go hard. Um. Yeah.
1: Wow. (laughs) That is
0: a really big introduction to being to see. Well, also too, because it happened really quickly. So the conversation sort of was happening for about a week and a half um, and I wasn't sure whether or not I was going to be on board. And then um, again, what I'm told is typical sea-, sea Shepherd fashion is that you sort of get the call at literally the last minute. So like on Friday afternoon, they said, I live in Melbourne and they're like, be in Hobart Monday morning. <gasps> so I, I had to, uh, not quite 48 hours or whatever it worked out to be, to get absolutely everything together. To You know, to travel to Antarctica, it's not like other trips where you go, it's all right I forget my shampoo or whatever. I'll just grab some of the 7-Eleven at the other end. <laughs> you know, there is no other end. Like, once you're on the ship, you don't get off. So it was a really strange trip to prepare for because I absolutely everything I needed I had to leave Australia with. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't know how long you're going to be at sea for. So that was the other reason I, w- I was able to join them because I'm a freelancer so I could say, OK, well, if it takes, you know, two weeks or four months, I can commit to the... Because that, that they said that a lot of journalists are like, yeah, we'd love to absolutely just two weeks if you could just drop us off. At, and they're like, oh, no, 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 it doesn't, work doesn't quite out. work like that. Um, and so I was quite fortunate that, you know, I was able to, you know, devote the time and so I was at sea for like almost three months wow and what about practicalities like I don't know um bills and rent and or whatever
1: how do do you plan for something like that or do you not plan for something like that you just kind of have to roll with the punches as it
0: as it happens well I'd sort of um I'd been house sitting and that had come to an end and so when all this kind of happened I just you know was technically homeless and staying with family at that point so that sort of actually facilitated being able to to spend that much time away as well so sort of um, a bit of serendipity at play in the background there. So uh, talk us through
1: your show so mm-hmm. it's called Then This Happened yep. and it's Talk, talk us through it. So we'll, I guess, you know, it's an opportunity for our listeners to have a, a bit of a taste of what they might experience if, if and when they come along. Well, we'll um, say when, when, when they come along. When, uh,
0: <laughs> oh, There's another seven shows to go to April 19, guys, Greek <laughs> Centre 945. Um... (laughs) Um, Basically, I've had actually a long break from stand-up. This is my first show since um, 2008. Uh, and So I decided I wanted to get back into stand-up. And the the obvious thing was, well, what have I been doing in that time? My my comedy's um, quite autobiographical. uh, So the most obvious thing in terms of that seven years um, is the biggest thing is... You know, I put Go to Antarctica on my bucket list and went <laughs> as if that's ever going to happen and, like, literally lost my bucket list. Um, and so the fact that it actually transpired, you know, amazes me. But, um, yeah, so that's what the show's about. So I've been doing a bit of travel. So um, I talk a bit about my... I spent um, a summer in California. I've spent a couple of summers now in California. And I talk a bit about that in the show. And also, obviously, um, the bulk of the show, 75% of the show, is about being at sea with yeah. the shepherd. Um, So talk us through some of the really...
1: I'm just trying to get a a sense of some of the, the funny things that might have happened. Were they more based on human experiences or the fact that you were so shocked by some of your own experiences? I mean, your first time at sea, you're down in the Southern Ocean, there's all sorts of drama and chaos going on around you.
0: How do you derive comedy from that? Yeah, look, this was one of the, the challenges because, um, you know, I don't... I mean, I know it's a red flag, comedy can be. It's like, oh, are you taking the piss? Are you belittling? Are you ridiculing? That can sometimes happen in comedy. And that's absolutely not what I'm doing um, to see Shepard. Like, so in, in that sense, um, I wanted to be really mindful that... Um, that you know, I, I'm telling my story as I saw it um, unfold, but, but within that I'm sort of, um, you know, these are really extraordinary people doing amazing things and I have huge respect and admiration for them. And, and that's probably really what I'm trying to get across in the show ultimately. Um, so in terms of the, where the comedy comes from, um, it's it's more, um, parts of the show are quite serious, you yeah. know. There was, there was one um, confrontation there where I thought that Bob Barker was going to sink in front of us and I'm not the only person that thought that, like, you know, we thought we were watching people about to die in front of us now that's serious and yeah. you know and my, so my show has that sort of that the light and dark of that in there and uh have any
1: of the people who you went down to the southern ocean come to your show
0: no because a lot of them are still on campaign oh, a lot of them some of them are on ice fish uh at the moment and other they come from all over the world so the, you know um they're scattered all over the place so no i actually haven't had anyone who was on the sam with me see the show yet uh Talk us a little bit through what happened in
1: Hollywood too because this is part of your show as well.
0: So is it babe, babe, babe Mansion? Yeah, well, what I talk about in the show there is that um, that there was a bunch of people I was living with and never in a million years did I expect them to have ever even heard of Sea Shepherd and yet they were all totally across it and were absolutely fascinated by um, wanting to know what it was like down there. So in, in, that's really what the show answers is that question is what, what's it like to be you know in Antarctica with Sea Shepherd. So, um, yeah. The detail all that kind of stuff all
1: right so let's let's talk about that for just a second about how what what it
0: was like to be down there well look it was extraordinary as you could well imagine I mean it was my first time on a ship so that already was amazing um, and my first time in Antarctica so it's an incredible spectacular part of the world but then on top of that there's this very unique thing taking place like you know there were nine ships that were basically in in a battle um, on, on several of these days and that's an amazing thing to to witness ships behaving in ways that you don't ordinarily see ships behave like harpoon ships trying to t-bonus and you know being hit by other ships and watching other ships get hit like the bob barker got sandwiched between two other vessels and um you know it was just you know, you, you, your brain isn't sort of... You're not expecting to see ships sort of relate <laughs> in, in that in that kind of way. And so it was absolutely extraordinary um, and, and amazing that, um, you know, everyone survived to tell the tale. Yeah.
1: It, it would have been extraordinary. And just in terms of the intensity of the interactions that you would have had with some of the other crew members as well,
0: how did they cope? Um, look, it, it's, it's surprising... Like, they're all very serious... Um, they're very serious about what they're doing, but at the same time, there was what surprised me. There was so much um, wit and levity, and so much laughter. Like there's some very highly intelligent, smart, funny people that are on these crews. So on that level, like a lot of the time, it was, um, you know, it was quite entertaining just um, socially. But but during those um, those times, I mean, you know, everybody stays really cool and calm and collected, and they're all experienced um, activists, and they, they know what they're doing. Um, so it was it was it was interesting, um, you know, and then. You know, then you sort of debrief afterwards and whatever. So after those intense, intense actions. So you're about two thirds of the way through the festival. Yes. Um, have the gigs been so far? Do you get yeah. heckling? No, no. No. Melbourne has nice audiences for okay. a comedy festival you know. And, you know, I'm telling a story. So um, yeah. it's, it's not that kind of comedy gig that sort of lends itself to that kind of audience banter. So if, if you're worried about comedians talking to you in the front row, I, I don't. Okay. So <laughs> you can, can safely come and not be spoken to.
2: This has been a podcast oh. from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly oh. independent community radio.